So I, I wanted to speak this afternoon, actually, to expand on something that Alison Davy mentioned uh, at last weekend, which was a reference from Simon Holly's book called Sustainable Power. I would recommend it to you if you haven't read it already. It's a really good read. Um, she mentioned that the Spirit of God wants to flow like a river through us. We heard, we heard it in the worship today. And that sometimes something like rocks in the river can block the flow. And that's what I want to look at a little bit this afternoon. I don't make any effort to pretend that this is my material, because <laughs> I've basically lifted it, out, lifted it out of Simon's book and put my own slant on it. But it's, it is something that I felt God uh, giving me, uh, actually while we were away on holiday, uh, Helen and I, I was reading the book and I felt re- God really speak to me about this. So I want to start with a, a scripture, and that picture up there is, you may not be able to see it that well, but it's like a river flowing and through some big rocks. And this is something which, this, is, this scripture is about Jesus promising li- living water from John seven thirty seven. He said, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now this next slide uh, is of what... I became a Christian in France uh, at the beginning of 1985, and I was in an Anglican church in Lyon, and the vicar used to circulate a hand-typed parish magazine. The cover looked like that. It's called the Roanouts Chaplaincy Newsletter. And every quarter, he would gather together these testimonies and write a message, type them up on a typewriter, copy it, bind it, and deliver it by hand or post. That's how old I am. Mm -hmm. Imagine that, I was a student, no internet, no laptop, no mobile phone. That's what it was like back in the day. But this, the spring edition of this newsletter had an article in there which was headed, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. That article was my testimony about just having become a Christian and Brian the vicar, who chose the heading, even though... It was sometime later before I found out about the Holy Spirit. Brian was in a way prophesying over me that the Spirit of God wants to flow through us like a river. Jesus' promise is that every believer will have these rivers flowing out of his or her heart. So what can the rocks in the river be? Most Christians are hungry for a greater reality of the Spirit flowing through them. We want more. Our experience, many would confess, feels more like a trickle than rivers. So did, was Jesus lying? No, not possible. Did he exaggerate? No. So if we have the rivers that Jesus promised, but it feels more like a trickle, only one thing is possible. Something must be blocking that flow. 
just as natural rivers can be blocked or dammed with large rocks. Spiritual rocks, I believe, can block the Spirit's flow. Does that match up with the Bible? Do we puny humans have the ability to block or resist the Almighty Holy Spirit? The answer, looking at the Bible, is a resounding yes. Again and again it warns us not to resist the Spirit, not to quench the Spirit, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Although he is sovereign, in some ways and in some areas, the Spirit is expecting and wanting a level of partnership with us, without which he won't move to the full extent that he wants. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't really start to become aware of the Holy Spirit until some time after I became a Christian. In fact, Brian the vicar, faithful man of God that he is, wrote me a letter after I'd returned to England from France saying that he felt convicted by God that uh, I hadn't received the fullness of the Holy Spirit when I was saved. And I was able to reply to him, by that time I'd met Helen, and together we'd started to seek out more of the Holy Spirit. We were thirsty for him, and we experienced some remarkable times of encounter with God in, in our church in Exeter at the time. And when visiting speakers used to come, I know Rob was around in Exeter at that time, there was a meeting called All Saints, where all the churches got together regularly, and we experienced some powerful times, and we have since then as well, but... If I'm honest, my experience of God and church doesn't always match up to the awe and wonder that we read about in the Bible. I've inherited a series of books called God's Generals from our late friend Graham Jakeman. He used to lead Jubilee Church, Leamington, uh, that before his untimely death in 2012. Graham had a real passion for reading biographies of the heroes of the faith. Powerful individuals like Mariah Woodworth Etter, Evan Roberts, John G. Lake, Smith Wigglesworth. And his favourite was John G. Lake. And he used to say that they shared a name because the G in John G. Lake is Graham. (laughs) And they're powerful histories. I've still got these books and I read them from time to time. Powerful histories of men and women who uh, knew amazing rivers of living water flowing from them. They stir a longing in you for, for that kind of river to flow from us. But how do we get there as a church? Because I believe that's what we're called to be like. Not just one or two superstars, but a church is a powerful company of people. Something must be blocking the flow. And these rocks have got to be removed if we want to be a church like that. So we'll only have time to sort of scratch the surface today, but I want to look at just one of those potential rocks in the river that Simon Holly talks about. And it's one he calls self-reliance. As I read his chapter on that, I felt God putting his finger on something in me. Simon describes how he was asked if he'd ever repented of the sin of pride. A little harsh, you might think. And Simon's response, like mine, was, I'm not a proud person. 
But it wasn't the pride of haughtiness or arrogance that was being highlighted, but the pride of self-reliance. It's, self-reliance isn't a word that we, a term that we find in Scripture, so what does it mean? It's rooted in what's called an orphan heart, a heart that sees itself as being alone in the world, that kind of attitude which says, you're on your own, mate, no one's going to fight for you, so you better do it yourself. There's evidence of that in the lives of the, lives of the disciples, and Jesus worked hard to change it. We see it primarily through his teaching that God is Father. It was a foundational revelation that Jesus brought. We're not alone, we have a Father. And I want to look at an example from the Old Testament in the life of King Asa. At that time, the kingdom had been split into two, Israel and Judah. And at the time of this narrative, Asa is king in Judah and Basha is king in Israel. I love the names, actually, and I have to sort of hold myself back from when I was practising this run-through with Helen. She was saying, you're saying all the names in a silly voice. Will you not do that? But I'll just get into... (laughs) This is in 2 Chronicles 14, if you care to look that up in your Bibles. 2 Chronicles 14. Oh, it's up on the screen there as well. And I hope Simon Clay will forgive me because I've chopped the text around a bit or chopped bits out to... uh, just for the sake of time. But this is starting the beginning of chapter 14, 2 Chronicles. And Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. And in his days the country was at peace for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Then I've skipped down to verse 8. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and with spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin, armed with small shields and with bows. All these were brave fighting men. Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots. In another version I read, it said, an army of a million, million men. And came as far as Marashah. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephathah near Marashah. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. So, what just happened? Asa was in a very tight spot. The land had enjoyed peace for ten years. Then suddenly he was under attack by an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Judah's army was about half a million men. If you've ever played the board game Risk, it's a world conquest board game, you'll know that the odds did not look good for Judah. The Egyptian army outnumbered the men of Judah and Benjamin by two to one. In Risk, the players attempt world domination 
by controlling armies, capturing territories, using the roll of the dice. Sometimes you can win a battle in risk when you have fewer men than your opponent. That's fewer men, cavalry and cannons, but it's rare. You'd need exceptional luck to win Aesel's Aces battle against Zerar the Cushite in a game of risk. So he was in a really tight spot. What did he do? What was his first response? Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. Help! I can't do this. There are too many of them. This is way beyond me. I'm way out of my comfort zone, Lord. I can't cope with this. I'm stuffed. What am I going to do? Fast forward 26 years. Asa is in his latter years as king. And we're in 2 Chronicles 16 at the beginning of that chapter. So this is in the 36th year of Asa's reign. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. At that time, sorry, I've skipped to verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet, when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing, and from now on you'll be at war. So, what's going on here? On the face of it, it seems a bit strange. 26 years after the first incident, King Asa is again in a bit of a jam. Another enemy is advancing against Judah. This time, it's the army of Israel, led by King Basha. I like that name for a king, especially a warlike king. King Basha. What is Asa's response this time? He says, I know, I'll take my gold and silver and the gold and silver from the Lord's temple and send it to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram. He will help me. At first glance, this strategy appeared successful. Ben-Hadad did help him and King Basha withdrew. King Asa did not have to wait long to find out what God thought about this. It says, at that time... Hanani the seer came and said, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. When you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. God spells it out for him. Last time you relied on me and your enemy was destroyed. This time you relied on the king of Aram and his army has escaped your hand. So what changed? In the first incident... King Asa cried out to God, Help! I need you. The second time, King Asa had a good idea. I know I'll get the king of Aram to help. In the first incident, Asa knew that he was not alone and that God would help him. In the second, he acted as though it was all down to him. 
Asa had to come up with the answers. Self-reliance is an expression of an orphan heart. You're on your own. Did you know that we are trained for self-reliance? I'll speak for me anyway. I know that I've been trained for self-reliance. Our culture is individualistic. You have to fight for yourself because no one else will do it for you. We get used to managing on our own. We can be stiff-necked and stubborn. We have a tendency to be independent and want to do it our own way. I know that I naturally tend to forget that I have a Heavenly Father who cares for me, loves me, and that he has all the answers. I can call on my dad because I'm his son. I'm not on my own. When we face a difficult situation that's totally beyond us, a challenge that we haven't faced before, relying on God is the only sensible answer. When we face a situation that perhaps we have faced before, perhaps like King Asa, relying on God is still the only sensible answer. He's got all the answers. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by a new challenge that's way beyond you. Maybe you're facing familiar difficulties that you've had to cope with many times before. It may be an emergency that needs an arrow prayer to God. Help! Like Nehemiah when he came before the king. Or it may be a longer term struggle that requires patient, consistent standing on the promises of God. We hear it a lot in this church because our calling is so great, so immense, so wonderful. It's way beyond us. We can't do it. We are not orphans. We've not been left on our own. We have a daddy who loves us. In fact, we're compelled by love. And we'll hear more about that next week from Becky Webb. (laughs) The rocks in the river need to be removed if we want to become a people and a church filled with sustainable power. We're called to be like rivers of living water, full of the power and love of God. We're called to be a hub for many churches. We're called to have a fathering voice and to be an apostolic community. A Nehemiah church that will build the broken down walls and restore cities that have been ruined. We're called to usher in his reign in the context of outrageous worship, having an influence in Solihull, Birmingham, Kenilworth, Coventry and beyond. It's way too big for us. We need to rely on him.